Our Old Testament reading comes from Psalm 40, verses 9 through 10. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. See, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your saving help within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament passage comes from Acts chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. But uh, before I read that, a a couple words by way of introduction. Uh, We are beginning, you may have noticed in your bulletin, a, a short sermon series on the church. Each week in this series, for the next six weeks, we will look at a different image in the New Testament of what this reality, the, the, the church is, who scripture considers us to be and be about when we are called the church. It goes without saying, right? We live in an age of individual rights, individual choices. It, it is something remarkably actually counterculture, countercultural, difficult, but also beautiful to consider what it means to see ourselves fundamentally and foremost called as a, a people. What does that mean to be the people of God before any other identity? What does it mean to be called into, baptized into a people? And so we're going to look at all the different ways the New Testament gets at this corporate reality that we share and how that presses into some of the assumptions we have as a culture and also proves so amazingly life-giving and centering. And this, this series of six weeks will lead into the Lenten season, uh, during which we'll actually have, as we did last year, small group offerings uh, for the whole church. And you're going to hear more about that, read more about that, but basically an intentional way in which we can live into a deeper sense of, of what this we-ness can be and, and, and is about. Before I read uh, the passage itself, I want to also give background on Acts 19. Uh, The Apostle Paul, he has been preaching in this city called Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. And his preaching has proven particularly effective among uh, enough people that it's persuaded them to stop following pagan gods, which were not really gods anyway. And among other things, one of the practical implications is they stopped buying these little silver trinkets that depicted the Greek god Artemis. In other words, Paul's preaching was leading people to use their money differently. And that was having an impact on the local economy. People who made their livelihood making these little silver trinkets of Artemis weren't selling as much to a degree that now they're getting upset that they're losing their income. Enough people start shifting how they think about their money. And so we begin in verse 28 where the story picks up from there. When they, the people being all stirred up by these upset vendors, when they heard this, they were enraged and shouted, Great is Artemis of, Ephes- of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with great confusion. The people rushed together to the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's travel companions. Paul wished to go into the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some officials of the province of Asia, who were friendly to him, sent him a message urging him not to venture into the theater. Meanwhile, some were shouting one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. 
Some of the crowd gave instructions to Alexander, whom the Jews had pushed forward. And Alexander motioned for silence and tried to make a defense before the people. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, all of them shouted in unison, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Citizens of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the statue that fell from heaven? Since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. You have brought these men here who are neither temple robbers nor blasphemers of our goddess. If, therefore, Demetrius and the artisans with him have a complaint against anyone... The courts are open. Let them bring charges there against one another. If there's anything further you want to know, it must be settled in the regular assembly. For we are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. When he said this, he dismissed the assembly. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Try that. There we go. Thank you. Perhaps a funny passage to start with uh, when talking about the church. We did not once, if you could hear, hear the word church used, but I promise we'll get there. Imagine for a moment you are tasked with founding a church in a place where nobody knows what a church is and they've not heard of Jesus. They know of religion in general, they have religious people, they have religious groups, but again, no sense for Christianity as such. Now, obviously, there'd be plenty of work to do, plenty of things to consider, but for a moment, just think of the concept church. Where do you start? How might you describe church? What what images come to mind? We're starting a church. What's a church? Is that a business? Is that a car? Is that a crop from your native land? Realizing you have no context here for this essential word, the gears start going, and, and maybe you recognize, okay, but these, do, these people, they, they, they know religion. They do know what a temple is or a mosque is or a synagogue is. They, they know about religious gatherings that take place in certain architectural features so so maybe you start there well a a church is like when a people gather in the temple but it's rooted in and founded upon following Jesus what you of course will be trying to make clear is is that like these other gatherings this is a a religious gathering but the essential and profound and unique difference is the church's focal point it is Jesus who He is what he has done, what he is doing, his birth, his death on a cross, his resurrection. And and the early Christians went this route in one sense as they were describing this new reality they shared together as believers in Jesus. There was not a a formalized word like church as, as we know it today, so... They used a common, a term that was common in the parlance of everyone in that day to help people get an understanding of what this group of Jesus gatherers was about. But here's the fascinating thing. They don't go with a religious word to explain how they understood 
these gatherings. Uh, Using the common parlance of the time, the Apostle Paul, for instance, when he writes to the church in a certain city time and again, Paul could have chosen a word like theasis. This referred to a cultic society that would gather around a god, to the theasis of Corinth, the ones who followed Jesus. I mean, Paul could have used that word and been quite clear that these early Christians see themselves as a religious group, one that follows the God Jesus. But Paul nor any of the other Christian writers go with that very common religious gathering word. They could have gone with another common word denoting a religious gathering, synagogue. To the synagogue of Jesus' followers... And again, that would have been an easy bridge, an easy choice. Okay, we are a religious gathering, but of course following the God who is Jesus. And that that changes some things, that nuances some things. That is fundamentally different. But rather go with either the common words for a religious gathering. The New Testament writers, in over a hundred instances, they go in a different direction. Time and again, when trying to describe this reality of a people who gather to to worship and and, and follow Jesus, they go with a very common secular word of the time, ecclesia. It is a word used three times in our passage from Acts 19, but in none of those instances did you hear ecclesia translated into English as church, because that's not what it meant in the original Greek. See if you can understand what Ecclesia meant as I briefly recount again that Acts 19 story. You recall Paul's preaching has had enough of an effect that it's changed the way people are, are spending their money. They're not buying the little silver trinkets of, of Artemis. And so some of the, the vendors are upset. They're not selling like they used to sell. It's impacting the economy. They go, they stir up all the citizens. And, and, and the most natural thing in the world, they all rush together to this large open air, exposed to the elements theater at the city center. And in verse 32, we read that when all arrived, quote, the ecclesia in the theater was in great confusion. The story continues. Eventually a clerk stands up and advises, look, if there's anything further to be known or discussed on this matter, it must be settled in the regular, also translated lawful, ecclesia. Then the whole story concludes, at least at this point, with the same clerk dismissing everyone from the ecclesia. So we have this people holding an ad hoc, confused, anger-filled ecclesia. And then they kind of get cooled down to a point where they realize they really should wait for the next regular scheduled lawful ecclesia, which ends up being the point of dismissal for this ad hoc ecclesia. Do you have a sense for how to translate ecclesia in English? Quite simply, it refers to an assembly of people. More particular, it was the Greek word for a city's regular civic gathering in which the citizens and the town council persons and the, and came together to decide matters for the common good of the city. Sometimes there emerged these ad hoc ecclesia city gatherings of the citizens like in Acts 19 when a pressing matter arises. Hey, this is important. We must hold an ecclesia, an assembly. This is pressing on how we live and function and prioritize and what matters. 
But most of the ecclesias were regularly scheduled realities that, that actually have strong parallels to city council gatherings in modern-day U.S. in terms of authority and matters debated and, and the way the citizenry citizenry uh, came together. I don't think I'm going to get that word, but you get it in your head. One thinks right of, of the city of Richmond, Second Mondays. Elected town council gathers, but so do our citizens. They can, they do come. Matters of, of routine importance, as well as matters of significant importance, funding allocations, thanks and recognitions for special occasions, discernment about pressing controversial topics, monuments, transportation debates, schools, city upkeep, beautification. And, and underneath, of course, any of these matters are certain values, either stated or understood values. Values about what matters, what should be prioritized, what's the best way to go forward as a people in all these facets of our common life. This is the nature of ecclesia. An ecclesia, not theasos or synagogue, ecclesia, is the Greek word that Paul and others in the New Testament go with when describing this new thing under Jesus called the church. So, for instance, we have what many consider the earliest letter in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians. So, so sort of our earliest, or at least one of our very earliest windows in how the Christian community thinks of itself. And here's what we get. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. To the ecclesia of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Or Corinthians, comes a bit later. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To the ecclesia in God in Corinth. Now most, some of our Bibles may be translating that ecclesia as gathering or assembly. Uh, some theologians like N.T. Wright will, will, will do that. Uh, but most of them probably translate church to the church of Thessalonica. And, and the reasons for that are rooted in, in really when the King James Version of 1611 was put together. And, and in many ways, yes, that's a true translation. But simply translating church in all of these instances obscures the surprising choice that the early Christians made when they were just trying to describe who they were as a gathering. What people in Paul's day would have heard is something like this. To the city council assembly of the Thessalonians... In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To the civic assembly of God in Corinth. Or, can you imagine you're tasked with planting a church right here in Richmond, Virginia. And and you write a letter to this new group and you say, To the city council meeting of Richmonders. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can start to see why this might be potentially problematic or confusing or disruptive or subversive. It would have been far simpler, far more benign to say words like, again, synagogue. Okay, say those in authority. So what we have is yet another religion, religious gathering, yet another God. That's fine, as long as they pay their taxes and honor the emperor, no big deal. But but you call yourselves the city council of Thessalonica in Christ? So what is that? We, the, the, the citizens here, we, we're the city council and gathering of Thessalonica, thank you very much. Are you, a, are you another civic 
counsel? Are you a, are you a different governance? Are you a threat? And in some sense, the answer to each of those words would, those questions would be, well, at some level, yes. Yes, in fact, we are civic in the sense that we think that all that we say and do has implications in and for the city into which God has placed us. We, we are not private. It's not like there's spiritual matters and secular matters, but we are concerned with all matters under the sun. We're not removed from our context. We're deeply embedded. And yes, to that second question, I guess we are a different governance. Like you, we gather regularly. We gather visibly for purposes of utmost importance. In our case, we worship, we, we gather to worship Jesus and seek to figure out how we might most faithfully follow this Jesus and worship this Jesus in all facets of our common life. In fact, one could elaborate on this particular answer and say, really, one of the central propositions of church is this. What would it look like if a people in every local context were governed most fundamentally by Jesus, who is love himself, who is justice himself, who is truth himself? What would it look like if every decision, big, small, civic, personal, every decision, every debate, every direction, everything under the sun, all of it was done under the governance not fundamentally of Caesar or the market or any other power, but done fundamentally under the wisdom and guidance of love, of justice, of truth, of Jesus, who is the fullness of each of those. So yes, we, we are a different governance. And to that final question then, yes, perhaps we are a threat. And the threat is found in the aspect that Paul always ends Paul's address to these followers of Jesus. Paul, you know, heard always qualifies his statement to the ecclesia in Thessalonica, in God, in Christ. The in means something by, like by the work of, or under the authority of, or for the sake of. Which is to say, this assembly, this governance of people, they gather not most fundamentally under the authority or, or empowerment of any, anything higher than Jesus. Now true, it's, the early Christians did not see themselves as some kind of revolt against Caesar. But at the same time, they were clear that their most fundamental allegiance was always under the authority of, in the power of, for the sake of Jesus, who is Lord over everything under the sun. And if push came to shove, and the path of Caesar diverged from the path of Jesus, well, that might cause an issue because these people will go with Jesus. Acts 19 is, is really a perfect example. Following Jesus made them think differently about their money and what really mattered and what was real and what was fake. And it starts to have an impact on the market forces and the economy. The governance of Jesus pressed upon the allegiances in other areas. And that was a threat. I began by having us consider how we might articulate church to someone who has no reference point for it. And there are undoubtedly a host of ways we might get at this. We're going to look at some further images in coming weeks. I imagine all of us have some default images of church. Certain names and faces, maybe certain sanctuaries, worship spaces, 
Maybe certain foods, certain moments. But for this morning, how does it change us or challenge us or encourage us about who we are as a church if we go with the image that Acts 19 helps us to frame? Where all aspects of life onto which the light of Christ falls, the light of Christ has a word, the light of Christ seeks to heal. What if we understood the gift we have in God in this unlikely, regular, visible gathering of Jesus followers as as an entity where we stand in the open-air theater in the center of Richmond? We are the city council of Richmonders in Christ. And we stand in sort of this open-air theater, and as we look around, that all that is exposed to the light, our own lives, our family, our city, certain people, as we look around at all that is exposed and open and matters, do we notice that the light of Jesus is shining on something where previously we had said, well, that's my business, or that's their business, that's their problem, that's a matter for them, not the church, that's my stuff, nobody needs to. Where does the light of Jesus fall this day, seeking to draw forth truth, bring healing? Because we're not a private religious gathering, we're not a huddled group who does their own thing, aloof from the concerns around us. For we follow the word who became flesh and dwelt not in a synagogue or temple, but dwelt among us. His light comes and radiates with warmth and light and truth into the center of our mess and heals. And so too we, his church, are sent forth into the open air heart of the context into which God has placed us for such a time as this. Thanks be to our God. Amen.